This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. Today, we're delving into the side effects associated with popular glucose-lowering agents, including oral agents and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Then we'll join Professor Steve Bain for a discussion of how to manage these adverse events and when to consider discontinuation. If you're already familiar with adverse event data across these classes, do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview. In addition, all references we discuss in the session are available in the episode description. As an additional note, all of the adverse events discussed today can be found on the agent's corresponding prescribing information. Adverse events are an unfortunate and common occurrence across medicine, resulting both directly from effects of therapeutics on unintended targets, and indirectly through knock-on effects from their mechanism of action. Diabetic medicine is no exception, with a number of common side effects associated with each therapeutic class. In order for people with diabetes to successfully manage their condition, it is vital to inform them on possible side effects and how to address them. Metformin, as previously discussed on this podcast, remains first-line treatment and the backbone of combination therapies for most patients. It is both effective and generally well-tolerated, with side effects generally limited to gastrointestinal upset during initiation. This includes possible nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and loss of appetite, which resolves spontaneously in most cases. In rare cases, however, metformin is associated with lactic acidosis. This metabolic condition occurs most commonly with acute worsening of renal function, Essentially, the body becomes unable to remove excess lactate, causing it to build up in the bloodstream and lead to an excessively low pH. Symptoms include acidotic dyspnea, abdominal pain, muscle cramps, asthenia, and hypothermia. Metformin prescribing information recommends that in cases of suspected lactic acidosis, patients should stop taking metformin and seek immediate medical attention. The risk of lactic acidosis also contraindicates metformin in patients with severe renal insufficiency, defined as an EGFR below 30 milliliters per minute. In a similar vein, SGLT2 inhibitors are generally well tolerated with some common, comparatively minor side effects and rare but serious adverse events to watch out for. The most common side effects noted on prescribing information for glyphosins are increased urination and urinary tract infection. Both are related to the mechanism of action for SGLT2 inhibitors, which increase excretion of glucose through the urine. The increase in urination can also lead to increased thirst and need for patients to remain hydrated. Diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, is a rare and significant side effect associated with SGLT2 inhibitors, particularly in people with type 1 diabetes. DKA occurs due to insufficient levels of insulin, causing a buildup of ketones and subsequently toxic acidity in the blood. Prescribing information for SGLT2 inhibitors notes that a risk of DKA must be considered in the event of nonspecific symptoms, such as nausea, vomiting, anorexia, abdominal pain, excessive thirst, difficulty breathing, confusion and fatigue. Where DKA is suspected or diagnosed, the SGLT2 inhibitor should be discontinued immediately. There's also a suspected increased risk of amputations in people receiving SGLT2 inhibitors. An increased incidence of lower limb amputation, primarily of the toe, has been observed in long-term clinical studies with canagliflozin. At present, it's unclear whether this is a class effect or specific to canagliflozin, as an underlying mechanism has not been established. SPCs for SGLT2 inhibitors recommend counselling patients on routine preventative foot care as a precautionary measure. 
CPP4 inhibitors, on the other hand, are not independently associated with common adverse events. As with other agents, they can increase the risk of hypoglycemia if added to a sulfonylurea or insulin. Beyond this, there are no common or very common adverse events noted in their prescribing information. In very rare cases, the use of DPP-4 inhibitors have been associated with an increased risk of acute pancreatitis. However, studies such as Lana Pinto et al.'s meta-analysis or Young Gun Kim's cohort study note that these risks appear to be small, not definitive, and comparable to risks associated with other agents such as sulfonylureas. Finally, GLP-1 receptor agonists. The class is generally well tolerated, but very commonly features gastrointestinal adverse events during treatment initiation. This includes nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, and a loss of appetite. As described by Feng Sun and colleagues in their 2015 systematic review, these side effects are transient and dose-dependent, declining over time after initiating treatment. As with DPP-4 inhibitors, there is also a concern for an increased risk of acute pancreatitis with GLP-1 receptor agonists, although this remains very rare. Finally, among the GLP-1 receptor agonists, semaglutide features a special warning for retinopathy. In patients with diabetic retinopathy treated with insulin and semaglutide, an increased risk of worsening diabetic retinopathy was observed in the SUSTAIN-6 trial. However, as noted in ADA ESD guidelines, rapid worsening of retinopathy is a recognized effect of intensification of glycemic control with insulin. So that's a quick overview of notable side effects, but what do these mean for clinical practice? How do we manage minor side effects and when should we discontinue treatment? Today we're joined by Professor Steve Bain of Swansea University for his clinical advice on side effect management. Thanks for joining the podcast today, Professor Bain. So today's first question is, metformin is a largely well-tolerated agent. However, some gastrointestinal upset is noted, as well as a risk for lactic acidosis. When should we consider side effects a contraindication to metformin? So I think there's, there's no doubt that many people get side effects from metformin, and the most common side effects are those related to the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and the impact can be anything varying from constipation through to diarrhea, heartburn, abdominal griping, just about any abdominal symptom apart from bleeding can be related to metformin and i think the crucial thing to be aware of is that a patient can have been on metformin for months or even years and then suddenly develop the side effects so the a change in dose or the initiation of medication might not have happened and so the patient's not aware that it could be the metformin that is responsible and that means that the clinicians are less aware and it's not infrequent that we see people who have upper and lower endoscopies to investigate their bowel symptoms and then are labelled as having irritable bowel syndrome, but only when they stop metformin at some point in the future is it clear that it was metformin that was involved. Now, there are slow-release versions of metformin, and there's no doubt in my mind that they are better tolerated. So we think that it's the increase in the plasma levels of metformin that causes symptoms. And so metformin tends to be given in divided doses. So that's uh, with two or three meals in a day. And if people are unable to tolerate standard uh, format metformin, then I tend to introduce slow release metformin, but also in divided doses. In terms of the patients that we should be looking out for, so anyone who's got previous uh, GI, pathology or GI symptoms, 
we'd be a little bit wary about using it. In terms of lactic acidosis, this really does seem to be an extremely rare complication. And almost all patients who develop it have got other reasons for developing lactic acidosis. So the side effect that led to metformin being withdrawn from the United States in the mid-1990s, uh, sorry, released in the mid-1990s, having been withdrawn about 19 years earlier, that lactic acid uh, threat was largely from fenformin, which is another class uh, drug in the class of biguanides. So lactic acidosis doesn't generally uh, concern me and the label for metformin has changed over recent years such that it can now be safely prescribed down to an EGFR of 30 mils per minute, although the recommendation that would be uh, at the lower doses of metformin. Wonderful, thank you for your detailed response. Now for SGLT2 inhibitors, what sort of advice do you provide patients with in terms of side effects, both for common events such as polyuria and UTIs, but also to monitor and prevent diabetic ketoacidosis? So for SGLT2 inhibitors, I think all patients who go on to these drugs should have general sick day rules. So that means that they should stop taking the medicine if they become ill with any uh, illness that leads to dehydration or vomiting, for example. And in that respect, they are similar to both metformin and to the GLP-1 receptor agonists. In terms of the specific side effects, I tend to warn people about the risk of uh, thrush, especially uh, women rather than men often get vaginal thrush as a result of starting on an SGLT2 inhibitor. But it does tend to be early in the course of uh, the use of these medicines and the symptoms do tend to settle with over-the-counter uh, medications that uh, patients are able to purchase themselves. I also find that I am very inclined to tell people about the increased risk of polyuria when they start the medication and point out that the higher the sugars then the more polyuria they will get because that's uh, the me uh, mechanism of action of the drug is to allow them to lose sugar in the urine, but it is something that should settle over time as the glycemic control improves. It does mean that I would uh, recommend people to take their uh, SGLD2 inhibitor first thing in the day so that the, any uh, polyuria will have waned by the evening. In terms of urinary tract infection, I think there's still genuine uncertainty as to whether this class of drugs does increase the risk of urinary tract infection. And so it's not something that I mention routinely. I would say urosepsis has also been extremely uh, rare in the uh, randomized clinical trials looking at cardiovascular safety. In terms of diabetic ketoacidosis, it's certainly a possibility. I think people need to be warned about the possibility that their glucose levels are going to be lower than they might anticipate for DKA. And in any patient who gets abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and that sort of thing, then the sick day rules come in at that point, and they should be told not to take the medication. For those patients who are type 1 diabetics in whom SGLT2 inhibitors may be used, and there is now one that has a license for use in type 1 diabetes, albeit a lower dose, then they should be given advice regarding ketone testing, and they should have the ability to do near patient ketone testing in their own homes so that they can detect diabetic ketoacidosis at an early stage. Marvellous, thank you. Similarly, when initiating a GLP-1 receptor agonist, what advice can you provide on minimizing the impact of the gastrointestinal side effects? 
So I think all patients who go into a GLP-1 receptor agonist should be warned of the possibility of GI upset, namely some nausea, possibly vomiting, and possibly diarrhea. So nausea is the most common thing, and that's the reason for starting these drugs, or several of these drugs, in a lower starting dose and then building up the growth uh, gradually. I think individuals need to be warned not only of the symptoms, but that the symptoms tend to disappear with time. So if they are able to tolerate uh, taking the GLP-1, then they should find that the symptoms will disappear with time. And they should also be uh, warned that these are not completely persistent symptoms. So it's not uh, a case that people are permanently nauseated. It's episodic uh, nausea that most patients will experience. In terms of uh, things to improve the symptoms, um, some people would recommend that uh, some, the sort of uh, trials of uh, things that work in pregnancy for pregnancy-induced nausea may be helpful. So I've heard people recommend ginger. Occasionally people are um, prescribed uh, anti-indigestion medications such as PPI inhibitors or uh, ranitidine, but there's no actual trial evidence and there's no evidence from the big studies to suggest that these um, medications really impact. And I think for most people, it's just having an awareness that the symptoms may happen, that the symptoms should be uh, symptoms that will disappear over time. And patients generally will, will go for, for the GLP-1s if they've got that knowledge, especially if they find that they get weight loss, which is one of the beneficial side effects of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Thank you again for such a detailed response. That's all the time we have today, but thank you so much for joining us. This brings us to the end of today's episode. To summarize, most antihyperglycemic agents are generally well tolerated, with a few notable mild side effects to consider when initiating treatment. These can typically be managed by discussing anticipated side effects with patients, offering symptomatic relief where needed, and generally these will subside once patients attenuate their medication. As we discussed earlier, all references and guidelines discussed in today's episode are available in the episode description. We'd also love to hear from you, so if you have any questions or comments about today's episode, join the discussion online by tweeting us at DKI Practice. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeinpractice.eu. Thanks for listening and we look forward to joining you next time when we'll be looking at how to help people with diabetes normalise their body weight.